Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Lead Cloud Engineer, John Goodall. How are you doing this week, John? Uh, you know, can't complain. I lubricated my shed lock at the weekend, so that's working much better. That's <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> it was, it's was. it been sticking for weeks. Um, uh, GT85. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which it, you'll only know that if you ride bicycles, which you do because you're a mammal. Mammal. I do I do ride bicycles and I, I'm ashamed to admit I am a mammal. Although having passed my 50th birthday the other week, I'm probably a little bit past the, the M part of mammal now. The first M anyway. I head on the downhill slope now of uh, middle age, I think. so. Uh, <laughs> for the listeners, that stands for middle-aged man in lycra. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't wear lycra. Nor am I middle-aged. I am middle-aged and I only wear Lycra at the weekends. Anyway, on that note, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, uh, his uh, fellow community builder, Steve Woodard. Uh, how are you doing today, Steve? Doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show today. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name is Steve Woodard. I live in Tampa, Florida. Um, I spent uh, four and a half years at AWS. Um, previous to that, I basically was working in technology where I bid multi-cloud for consulting companies. Uh, went over to AWS to work as a solution architect, spent four years there. Um, and then uh, I moved out of there and I moved into work for companies like Capgemini, where I helped build out cl cloud center of excellences. And presently, I'm a customer technology advisor at Kendrel, where I work uh, with clients to help accelerate their cloud journey. Nice. And what did you do at AWS when you were on the inside as an Amazonian? I uh, worked as a senior solutions architect um, in the Florida territory. So I worked around customers um, around primarily around financial services, retail, energy, manufacturing, automotive, healthcare, and a few others. So I kind of spanned across different industry verticals. Awesome. I think you're our first ex-Amazonian. I think that's a first. <laughs> I think he may well be our first ex-Amazonian, actually. Mm. Yeah, well, our first Amazonian. We've never had an Amazonian. Current it's or a privilege. Ex, uh, on I'm the glad podcast. to be the first. So, uh, we, we do like firsts on the podcast, so uh, there we go. Uh, welcome, Steve, and, and thank, thank you for joining us. And uh, do, do you wear Lycra? at all absolutely not <laughs> i think they call it spandex in the u.s don't they so uh, uh they do brand, doing, isn't it? Yeah. they do yes uh however i do not wear them i i uh i um i won't disclose my workout gear uh it usually consists of sweatpants uh and or basically working out in like jeans and a t-shirt which is fair enough pretty much what this I'm is a man that lifts cardio what's that uh, that's no, me I, running I'm after. A... That's me running after my three-year-old twin boys on bicycles down the street as they basically take off in full speed, and then I'm in a full sprint to catch them before they run out of the neighborhood. That's my that's my cardio for the day. <laughs> I live on a bus route. That would be about three seconds for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better get those uh, bicycles on some kind of leash then to uh, stop them from uh, from escaping. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about workout attire. As regular listeners to the uh, podcast will know, this is a, an AWS news podcast. So once a week, uh, I collate a list of AWS news, which I share via my AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles that we'd like to talk to you about on the podcast. So we've got a selection of articles this week that we're going to go through. And the first of those uh, is an article from the AWS DevOps blog, 
uh, entitled Import Entire Applications into AWS Cloud Formation. Um, so this is one of a range of new features that AWS has recently launched uh, to help you uh, create uh, infrastructure as code uh, in their own brand of infrastructure code, which is, of course, cloud formation. So, John, what can you tell us about this importing? Why would you want to import your entire application into AWS cloud formation? I mean, why wouldn't you? Duh. Okay, let's move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a bit of a continuation from the um, console to code that we spoke about last week, and we mentioned this because um, because of the way that the news cycle in this podcast works and the recording schedules and what have you. Uh, this was announced between kind of setting up and, and starting the recording for that one. So we touched on this last time. What this does is this lets you look at your existing infrastructure and say, I want to have a CloudFormation template for these things, please. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's amazing. Context, I've had to do retrospective builds of Terraform, but same concept of pre-existing resources, right? And it's painful. It's really painful because you've still got to manually roll all of your templates or manually roll all of your Terraform code. And then you've got to go through and import one resource at a time. And in Terraform, that's that's not horrible because it's a single you know command on the CLI. But if you're doing lots of different types of resources, you're typing very long commands and you just sit there for hours and hours and hours to do it. And with CloudFormation, again, okay, there's a CLI command, but it's hours to do it the old-fashioned way. What this does is it looks at what's already in your account, and it's limited to a... Uh, a certain area and the example they use here is within vpc and honestly that's 60 percent of aws's revenue so it makes sense for them to stay in that area to start with because most people are deploying things there looks at everything in the vpc and gives you uh, a template for what's there and gives you the option straight in the gui to create a stack from that and because everything's already deployed you just get a whole load of import 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 there's your stack there's your template done and you can take that template in yaml or json if you're a bit mad and put that in your source control and then you can do cool things with it afterwards so that you can do like refs from external sources and that kind of thing where you've previously manually put in things like cider ranges and all that kind of thing but this is amazing this is really cool you know what this is a. Uh... This is really cool. I really do like this. And I started playing around with this a little bit. Um, it reminds me of Cloudformer. Um, if you remember Cloudformer before they deprecated it, I mean, it basically did the exact same thing. Cloudformer would basically act as a cloud formation template. It would basically go out and scan your entire environment. It'd bring it back as infrastructure as code. We used to use it with customers to be able to do DR simulations, right? So they'd actually be able to back up their entire environment using uh, Cloudformer, and then they deprecated it. And I think they basically were bringing it back. I think Application Composer is kind of now this really kind of cool way to you kind of drop workflows onto kind of a canvas, right? Which is basically like CloudFormation Designer. But I think I think it's just got a really cool wrapper, but I think it opens up more possibilities around, you know, developers can define more around their applications infrastructure, they can restructure, restructure their basically their resources, their version controlled, which is also really cool. So I give this a lot of credit where you give the consistency and reliability and repeatability back to developers to be able to do this and iterate with code. I think it's really cool. So why was CloudFormer deprecated then? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, 
you know, when when I started playing with CloudFormation, you know, very early on, even when, when I joined back at AWS back in 2016, um, it was it was a really cool feature that no one really knew about, right? You had to go inside the console, you had to really find it, um, and it really did work for a little bit. I think the service teams probably wanted to move off to more functionality within CloudFormation. By this time, Terraform was starting to make more of a huge push. Uh, for infrastructure as code, we started to see a lot more customers adopting more of a Terraform type of infrastructure as code first type of approach because they wanted to go multi-cloud. Um, but I think that it took them a while to figure out what they wanted CloudFormation to ultimately do. And I think this is kind of more of that, like it kind of incubated into kind of an idea where you want to be able to have um, an improved workflow for your CI CD pipeline. So I think they, they kind of looked at it. They heard from customers that said, look, we really like this feature. We want to bring something like that back. Um, again, it's just, I love CloudFormation because of all the cool things you can do. I think you could do some things in Terraform, but ultimately still what's inside the console is that it's still executing a lot of CloudFormation underneath and behind the hood. So I think this just really kind of fits into that real developer productivity type of stack. I mean, it's just more easier, more management with the development of certain products. I, I have real issue with the whole, we're, we're a Terraform shop because it's multi-cloud. Okay, yeah, fine. You're using the same tool, but it's not the same code. That's like saying Python is amazing because it runs on all major operating systems. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, again, I think what Terraform is, you know, you hear from customers a lot where they say, you know, look, we, we don't want to be tied to a specific cloud native tool. We want open extensibility. We want more functionality. It's still a migration project. You're still going to have to rebuild everything it's unless good. you're a complete idiot and it, you've modularized everything so that you've got, oh, now I want a GCP version of this or an AWS or an Azure or whatever. And you're just mm -hmm. calling modules saying which flavor you'd like. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> you're essentially creating the monolith all over again. Basically, yeah. uh, you know, it, it it does present a big big issue with with some customers is that they they have very good intentions to start with, but I think in their cloud maturity as they start to increase is that they start to hit certain points, especially around certain things around infrastructure as code, is that they realize that there's a, eventually going to be a bottleneck. Um, that they're going to have to solve for. So, I mean, maybe this is kind of more of a, maybe kind of a, maybe a first wave to kind of say, look, we're going to maybe have it much more easier to work with. Um, you know, I think the intention is good. We'll see how far this adoption gets over the next 12 months to see really kind of how effective it's going to be with more enterprises deploying it. And might be a silly question, but if you are a Terraform shop, does this help you at all? No. There yeah, you go. I, so. <laughs> I, so. I mean, Logicata, we are officially a Terraform shop. I've been working very hard quietly to make us less of one of those and more of a tool for the job sort of shop. There you go. Um, I can certainly see big advantages for, you know, new. The, the example they give is you're a new um, engineer at a, at a company. And the same is very true if you're a new managed service provider and you have a project that you need to bring everything into IAC. Customer doesn't particularly care which one you use. Okay, well, we'll just do it like this then. Mm -hmm. that, that turns weeks to months of work into days to weeks. Brilliant. I like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. On that note, let's move on to the next article for this week, which is uh, sticking with the uh, topic of infrastructure as code. Um, this is an article from InfoQ, and the title is AWS launches CDK Migrate and CloudFormation IAC Generator for Infrastructure as Code Adoption. Um, so um, 
we've just been talking about um have we been talking about iac generator i'm getting very mixed up with these things right? when, I was trying to, when i was trying to read this for the week and prepare for this podcast over the weekend i kept going back from one to the other and reading and i was completely confused so i'm hoping that you guys are going to be able to demystify this for me um it's not quite the same but iac generator is part of it because if you open iac generator you get step one is scan for resources step two cfn template step three is import to cloud formation which is what we've just been talking about or cdk which is this one mm-hmm. why would you want to do that that's a, that's an interesting question it's as as with all InfoQ articles, it's a very short one, and there's just a lot of people linking to tweets. Cool, fine. One of them is really interesting, though, because um, what? And I kind of buy this. It's I'm not even going to pronounce that, but an AWS security hero said, you know, I get why people want to use CDK because you don't want to learn CloudFormation, don't want to learn Terraform, and you come from a Python or a TypeScript background or whatever. But what mm-hmm. CDK does ultimately is boil down to CloudFormation. I mean, AWS Sam does that as well. It's a transform layer. You know, it's just cloud formation under the covers. So why would you want to do this? Uh, That's an interesting one. That is, that's an interesting one. Because if you've already gone through the legwork of going to cloud formation, why would you then bother to go to CDK? Well, you might do it because we've seen this pattern, not specifically this, but a pattern, where your solitary DevOps engineer that understood what was going on has left. <clears throat> excuse me, or is leaving. And everything's already in cloud formation, but nobody else really understands it. So you need it in a tool set that's more understandable by your TypeScript developers, mm-hmm. for instance. That's one obvious use case for this. It's it's in TypeScript. It's not, quote, proper TypeScript, quote, because everything's stringly typed, which, which mm-hmm. I like. I, I heard that from a, a talker that stringly typed. TypeScript is strongly typed, but <laughs> it's stringly typed because everything's a string. Um but that's, that's certainly one use case I can see. Um, maybe you've got one random stack that's in native cloud formation and you're trying to reconcile everything into CDK and you don't want to rewrite it all from scratch. That's another use case. But it's certainly, as cool as it might seem, it's limited in its usefulness, I think. So, uh, look, I, I get... I. I get where the, the 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 appeal would be is if you're looking for kind of a managed uh, experience to generate CDK, um, and then you want to be able to use familiar programming languages like TypeScript and Python to make it easier for collaboration purposes. Um, I, I also get it if, in fact, if you're working with resources that need to be migrated into an AWS region, uh, if the resources are created outside of an infrastructure as code stack or if they need to be deployed with inside, I haven't had a chance to really kind of play with this. But the problem is, is that one thing that we've oh, one thing that I've definitely learned and had a discussion with a lot of customers and especially amongst many other Amazonians is customers suffer from what they call this product overlap paralysis. Right. There are CDK migrations. Then there's the. Um, orchestrated workflow within CloudFormation, you know, there's a lot of paralysis as to which which type of service should I probably be using. You know, there are a lot of services sim to overlap with each other. And again, I think this is a really cool feature. I get it if you want to kind of have a managed service, a managed experience for generating just, you know, generate CDK code from existing resources or CloudFormation, but there's kind of an already way for you to kind of already do that. So, I haven't really seen where the value is for this one just yet. It's still in beta. Was it in beta? Is it still in beta? Or did it hit GA? I think it hit GA. Um, 
Yeah, it's GA. Yeah, yeah just on GA, yeah. I, I haven't really had a chance to really play with it much, and I haven't seen many people who have. So um, I'm still kind of maybe trying to play with this to see really kind of where it might really benefit. Like what, what 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 problem would this really solve? So yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I've had a bit of a I don't want to say come to Jesus because I, that gets into religion and, and mm. I don't like doing that. But I've had a bit of an awakening, let's say, with CDK because I was vehemently against CDK for a long time. Mm. And that's again in this article. There's a, a tweet saying um, you know people that come from a dev background like things like CDK. People come from an ops background like me tend to like declarative stuff in YAML and cloud and um, and Jason Yaml for Terraform and, and CloudFormation because it, it's more familiar. It feels more familiar, I think. I've had a bit of an awakening on it, though, because I was at a talk a few weeks ago now, and it basically likened writing raw templates to writing everything in assembly. Okay, I can see that because everything does eventually boil down to assembly, but that's not a reason to do it in assembly. It's, it's why would you, you wouldn't do that. You use modern scripting or programming constructs because writing everything in assembly is hard. And I suppose the argument is generally using CDK, not specifically this tool, but generally using CDK is meant to be easier because you're writing less, there's a lot less boilerplate, and yeah, it'll boil down to the same thing eventually, but you haven't had to do it. Whether that's a use case for this or not, I don't know because you've kind of already done it. You've sort of done the legwork and that this very much seems... Uh, I'm not quite sure. It's, it's. I can see the logic as if you're going from no IAC to CDK, but when you've got the option of going to raw cloud formation or CDK, it it becomes a lot less clear. I think. Yeah, I'm not really sure what problem it's really trying to solve again yet. I've, I've not had a chance to really, really see where the benefits of it really shine here again. Again, it seems to me more again like product overlap paralysis. There's, there's, there's probably a use case where you may want to see that, you know, your organization is trying to adopt this, um, but it starts to get a little bit complex when you've got different ways of doing it. I think if you kind of back to your point, John, as you say, look, we're going to leverage the CDK for everything going forward. Okay, fine. That makes sense. You have a starting point and it's really kind of giving you the kind of that managed experience through the CDK. Okay, fine. For some customers who aren't doing that, probably won't adopt it, won't use it. They'll move on. Yeah. Product my, my takeaway, Brilliant term. I like that. That's exactly what I was just going to summarize on. The product overlap paralysis is my key takeaway there. I'm going to be reusing that one, Steve. It's the first I had a moment like that earlier today because I was doing something for a customer and it's I could do this in this cloud formation tool, I could use a stack set, I could use org formation, I could do it with Terra Grunt across multiple accounts. What, all of them are going to do the same thing. Which one do I? And I spent a good half an hour sitting there going, I don't know. And fundamentally, it doesn't matter. So I just kind of picked one. But yeah. it's a thing. Well, the good news is now you have a uh, phrase to describe the feeling you were having. So, yeah, we called it, we called it pop. <laughs> Absolutely. On that note, let's move on to the next article for this week, which is an article from our friends at uh, The Register um, uh, about uh, something we've spoken about several times previously on the podcast. It's the new charges that AWS are now levying for IPv4 addresses uh, since the beginning of February, uh, I believe. Uh, this new charge has come in for IPv4 addresses. And uh, as uh, The Register says in the article, you were warned. Um, <laughs> this one, uh, this one goes on to speculate uh, just how much cash AWS might be generating um, by bringing in this charge. So it's uh, the full <laughs> Doctor Evil moment, is it? One billion dollars. Yeah. 
That, and that is at the higher end of the uh, the right. uh, the estimate of how much cash AWS could be generating. But what do, I'll come to you first on this one, Steve. What are you, what are your thoughts here? Uh, just a, a ploy to generate cash, or a genuine uh, you know need to conserve IP addresses? Probably both. Um, I think uh, customers tend to be a little bit wasteful when they're starting to generate their cider blocks with a slash sixty four, right? I mean, or were they what they got what is a slash twenty two? What is it? I can't remember what it is. Like sixty four thousand IP address, IP four addresses in use that or they're not in use. Um, you know, I get the idea that you want to basically kind of force customers to kind of have more of a um, kind of a conservative approach to you know kind of the, the IPv4 problem. But again, where I, this is going to really get the rub is really going to be is going to be is the impact on customers' cloud cost spend. Um, you know, it's going to experience you know higher expenses for customers, especially when it revolves around networking infrastructure. Um, and they're going to really have to really start to reassess uh, how their budget allocations are going to be for AWS services and looking at how they're going to optimize resources and how, ultimately how they're going to mitigate and offset those costs because it's going to basically be a sticker shock for them if all of a sudden one day they wake up and they're like, wow, we've got you know, X amount of, uh, you know, X amount of increase in cloud spend um, because of this IPv4 charge. I mean, would we possibly look to make either an impact on cutting our budget, increasing our budget? It, I mean, if you follow the current trend is that, you know, 17% of organizations right now are specifically in a cloud optimization, co uh, co cost optimization type of frequency. And they're going to be this way for the next 24 months. So this is probably not going to go over well for customers who are looking to say, well, we're in this journey to conserve costs and reduce and basically be more optimized. Now you're adding another tack on another uh, another tack on top of that where you're going to charge us for this IPv4 address. I mean, again, that's going to have a big downstream effect. It's an interesting one. You're not wrong about the costs, but from my perspective, and I'm kind of rehashing some old opinions here, but the people that this is going to affect most are the people that can't do anything about it, really. And then the people that are really going to suffer from, you know, it's not a huge amount of money. It's like $4 a month or something, but it's the lower and mid tier folks that have got an older style application that just needs to sit on servers. Mm -hmm. If you look at someone like um, I don't know, an IBM, and they're running massive workloads, arguably. They don't care. They, they've got the money to not care. They'll whinge and moan, but fundamentally they can just take it on the chin and move on with their life. And it's those sorts of people that are going to be hoarding IP addresses anyway. In you know, I'm sure IBM aren't hoarding IP addresses, but it's going to be those sort of larger enterprises that will be hanging on to them when they don't need them. Whereas you look at your one and two server people, and okay, maybe it's not the best um, architecture in the world, they don't have a load balancer or, or whatever, and all of a sudden they've got another $8 a month on their cloud bill, which is not a lot of money, but it's money that they didn't necessarily have to spend because they're incredibly lean with their spend. It's them that it's going to hurt. And the biggest issue I take with all of this is six months ago we were saying, okay, it's not a lot of money and it encourages you to use IPv6 and maybe they just brought the stick out before the carrot. I haven't seen the carrot yet. Not really. You've got dual stack for load balancers. You've got IPv6 only now for light sale. And okay, fine, free tier now includes for the first 12 months one IPv4, which is important because one of the big things of free tier was you could have a server for 12 months and pay nothing for a year. And you can still pay nothing because, cool, fine. But there's a whole bunch of things that still need public-facing IPs that sit on IPv4. And that's stuff that doesn't really need IPv4. Does your load balancer need IPv4? No, it can probably live with IPv6. Do your NAT gateways need it? 
No, they can probably live with IPv6. Does your internet get in it? No, it can probably live with it. And it goes on. It goes on. Which is why this is uh, leaving a bit of a bad taste in the mouth, I think, for this. Because fly in my office that's very annoying um <laughs> because job the, the stick yeah because the stick came first and the carrot hasn't materialized yeah i mean i think the i think the idea of living in a perfect world where everyone's using ip version 6 that everyone's using kind of like they're all basically server applications they're modernizing they're basically going more to container approach right they're using all the new latest and greatest but the reality is, is that some customers, especially enterprise customers, just aren't living in that paradigm. They're not living in that future state yet. They're still working on deconstructing the monolith and still decoupling applications. So they're still working in this mindset that they're at least probably 16, at least 16 to 24 months away from being able to really truly get serverless or really start to get more modernization. So this either could be probably be either one or two things is going to happen. Either number one is that customers are really going to complain and, I, and AWS is probably going to say, okay, listen, over the last 24 months, we've had 92 price reductions. Okay, fine. We'll do we'll do, we'll do 93. Okay, um, they'll probably get that from a lot of customers, or it'll force customers. It'll kind of force their hand to either basically say we need to modernize now and get off kind of the old legacy IP v4 because the potential downstream effect is going to be X. And when you start basically looking at that downstream effect of what cost is going to be it's going to start moving the needle for customers in one way or the other. So we'll have to see what, where that needle moves in one way or the other, whether it's going to be, they're going to transform their applications. They're going to get more modernization in there because they're not moving fast enough. Or they're going to basically complain and say, our bill's too high. We're going to move to Azure. The big question for me, uh, when the next quarterly results come out, and I'm sure they won't be broken down in this way, but will <laughs> AWS make more, make more money out of IPs or AI? <laughs> wow that's a great question we'll have to wait and see well uh, i mean listen as long as you're using your elastic ip right you're not you're not going to get charged for it or maybe you will now no you will that's the thing you wouldn't <laughs> you weren't charged before when they're in use but now you're charged whether you're using it or not so yeah that's that's my point around the stick the stick came first <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this is really received by, um, you know, especially for customers who have a very large, substantial landscape running in the cloud that depends heavily upon this. I don't know. It's it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, there, like I said, there's probably going to be some squawk and there's probably going to be some pushback. It's just going to depend upon like what that pushback result is going to be. Let's wait and see. On that note, let's skip on to uh, our next article for this week. And uh, I myself have written posts in the past about the six R's of cloud migration. We've always spoken, we've been talking about the six R's of cloud migration for years. Then I think it became seven R's. Seven and then all R's. of a sudden it, uh, it jumped to 13 R's uh, in this article. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not sure that uh, 13 R's has become common vernacular in the cloud space just yet. Uh, but perhaps if uh, Adrian Bridgewater at Forbes has his way, uh, we're all going to be talking about the 13 R's. So I got another the six to remember i think but uh, what, what are your thoughts on this one john well i'm going to be honest i picked this article because it made me think of a very british 70s kind of joke um and i'm going to punish you all with this one now um <laughs> carl might remember this because he's, he's the right sort of age in the 70s and probably the 80s there was a big push to get um numeracy and literacy results in the uk better through what they called the three r's which is reading writing and arithmetic and my father has you know told me about this no ad nauseum hence i'm familiar with it the joke being that only reading starts with an r so it was reading writing and arithmetic, arithmetic. and it just made me think of this it, <laughs> it just but that's it that's all i've got um. <laughs> 
look, I think the, I think the idea around the, the the six R's, and then there was a debate if there was going to be a seventh R, right? And then I start to see this now. You've got thirteen R's. I think when I look at this article here, is you know the idea to number eight, reoptimize, remediate, repurchase, reobserve, and reinvent. Um, I like the idea that it's basically trying to paint the picture around a true modernization play for you know kind of for organizations looking to really take advantage of the cloud. The problem with that is, is the idea is that there's still a skills gap, you know, is that, you know, you look at the looming skills gap, right? So if you look at this article, it's kind of imagining that your organization's already kind of already in a prime position that you can go and execute on the cloud journey. Um, it's very difficult because, you know, we say, well, the 15 to 20% have yet to be migrated. Um, most customers are going to be working in multi-cloud environment, um, but the largest skills gaps in, in, that exist in the market right now are things like data analytics, engineering, uh, storage. I mean, only 9% of organizations say that they're fully proficient in one cloud provider. So it is a huge wave to say that there's now more part of transformation. We all know that there's multiple aspects of true cloud transformation. We used to say customers would start with cloud migration, then they would do modernization year two, then they would do transformation in year three or four. And it's an, it's an iterative kind of journey. Um, this is very helpful, but I think in another way, it's almost, it's almost too much like 13 R's. Yes. This is where customers have really struggled to build a cloud operating model around their cloud journey. They still are operating in traditional type of IT data center type of mindset. They move to the cloud. They probably have kind of like a cloud governance. They have a cloud governance team. They don't really have a true build out of, of a true CCOE team yet. They kind of have some sort of governance, some sort of framework around this. Um, I, I think this is something that still needs to be explored around what are you going to do after you migrate me? There's all these things to do, yes, but we don't have the capabilities in-house to do that, so we have to go out and get them. Um, and this is kind of, you know, kind of what we've been saying for the last couple of years is that there's the cloud journey is, is a multifaceted octopus you got to get around. Absolutely. One thing I did quite like at the end of this article, just to prove that I read it all the way through, uh, was the, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the uh, origin story of reInvent. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but uh, the article link will be in the show notes. So if you want to see the uh, the origin story of reInvent, I don't know how much truth there is in that anecdote, but uh, I did find that one quite interesting. Anyway, on that note, let's move on to our final article for this week, uh, which uh, is uh, an article uh, on about Amazon.com. Uh, with uh, four tech predictions um, from uh, Amazon CTO, Dr. Werner Vogels. Um, so uh, let's just touch on some of these. Of course, the first one is about generative AI. Um, so we had to mention it. I did kind of briefly mention it uh, a couple of minutes ago, but uh, let's talk about generative AI becoming culturally aware. Is that something we should be worried about or something we should embrace? No, good thing. Yeah, end I of think, discussion. Good thing. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I, I mean, I I think his article really kind of emphasizes the trend around you know de, you know democratized AI, right? And they talk about really kind of you know really that the, the adoption's here. It's 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 here. Um, I think his 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 ideas around distributed ledger technology, especially around blockchain AI, um, you know, basically the evolution evolution of edge computing and really kind of the advancement of the cutting edge technologies. I think he also mentions in the article is he is also talking around basically is um 
the AI, which I find very interesting, is basically the AI in education space. I mean, right now is that they're saying that, you know, the the AI education market's predicted to exceed $80 billion by 2030. And, you know, you start to look at, okay, well, what is the study done kind of into around AI? I think I think everything else in the story is fine. Well, I think where you need to double click is the, the, the topic around, you know, AI in education. And you say, well, what's the study say? Well, in 2021, they did a study, 51% of the faculty of basically most, you know, most education entities says that they're more confident about using AI in education than they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. So that kind of accelerated that whole AI and education adoption. So I think you're starting to kind of see like just the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to mostly where he's talking about. I think everything else is fine, but the AI and education is gonna be something very, very interesting. Uh, I think he also goes and mentions around sustainability principles. I find that to be very interesting because again, you know, there was a study done with, you know, uh, you know, there was a study done just recently basically says that only 16% of organizations have actually adopted a sustainability uh, posture. They've only actually implemented 16% and sustainability is something that they've been talking about for four or five years. Um, so it's probably great PR saying, hey, we're, we basically got our ESG scores, we're great and stuff like that. But only 16% of organizations have actually done anything about it. Um, environmental consciousness, yes, of course, ethical considerations. But here's the thing around ethical considerations is I've talked to a lot of people around this. I've talked about this on my podcast as well as basically is like nobody has really figured out like how we're going to get the ethical conversation into the AI conversation is that like you have a lot of organizations out there providing and developing ethical frameworks for AI. But when you talk to some people who are actually working on it saying, well, which type of framework are you implementing? And they'll say, well, th this or that, there doesn't seem to be one or the other that they really do. There's a lot of them out there. And it's kind of like, it's like you pick whichever type of ethical framework you want to put around. Um, so the landscape is very vast. It's uncharted territory. It's going to be interesting to kind of see where this is going to happen. I know he mentions in the article something about digital twins. I was talking to somebody who was the other day who was talking about they they had a, a, a doctor in Singapore who was basically able to simulate um, basically performing surgery on Siamese twins um, using digital twins. It's kind of like your digital version of yourself. So they actually were able to simulate the surgery before they actually conducted it actually on a real person. So that shows you that there is unique power within AI and that it is very, very helpful for humanity. I think when it comes to education is that you get into things like lack of regulations, lack of standards, loss of personal connection, more dependency around technology. I think those are some things that it's going to be interesting to see kind of how those play out in the next couple of years. Just my predictions. Mm. Interesting. Uh, the the second prediction here was uh, about femtech finally taking off. That's a, that was a new one on me. Femtech, never heard that. I've uh, heard uh, lots of different prefixes to the word tech, but uh, yeah, women's healthcare uh, being referred to as femtech, and uh, he mentions that uh, it's going to reach an inflection point this year as investment surges, care goes hybrid, uh, and an abundance of data unlocks improved diagnosis and pace patient outcomes um why specifically fem women's healthcare though uh rather than just healthcare in general I, yeah it's interesting he's called that out as a kind of a separate area of healthcare studies show that they basically have more data uh specifically mm -hmm. per patient they have more data uh because uh, you know, we go to the doctor probably like once in a five-year period of time, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, again, so if you were to say basically based upon demographics, you know, you probably say on average is that you probably have 10 times the amount of data on a particular patient that tends to be within one uh, gender category versus the other. 
And if you were to try to say, listen, the more data we have, the better models we can build, the better AI predictions we can build, right? There's more of a wealth of knowledge there that we can basically kind of, you don't have to, you know, you say, we're going to boil the ocean, we're going to find a data model that works, and we're going to use that for predictive and prescriptive type of, you know, patient care. So again, you know, you say, look, I got this guy who walks in, he's in here for the first time in 10 years, no data whatsoever. So you probably go with where you have more data. Yeah, that does make sense. That absolutely makes sense. But on that note, we have reached the end of our time for this week. Um, so uh, there were a couple of other predictions, but we kind of strayed into those, I think, in our conversations around AI. The uh, data but, thing, uh, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. The data thing is funny. I think my cat's been to the vet more times in the past five years than I've been to the doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, next year, maybe Werner will be predicting uh, feline tech uh, is about to take off. Wearable, so we'll have to wait wear, to see. There you go. Wearable tech for, for, for cats. Probably whoever's going to come up with some sort of probably like digital AI collar that will probably tell you whenever your cat might have like a heart palpitation or something will probably next be the next big billionaire. There you go, John. Something to work Mine on. Would never wear it. Mine would never wear it. They'd try and kill me actually trying to kill me i think that's the biggest challenge i don't think it's the data collection the diagnostics or anything else it's just making something that it would actually wear (laughs) (laughs) anyway on that note we have reached the end of our time for this week so uh, that was uh, season three episode seven of logicast thank you very much for listening thank you john for your insights as always and thank you steve uh, for joining us as a guest it's been great to have you on and Thank you very much for sharing your insights. Um, so uh, that is the end of season three, episode seven of Logicast. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. Don't forget you can download Logicast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see what we look like when we're talking to you, we're also available on YouTube. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>